Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. I used to just feel numb. It was like taking a kid to Disneyland and then making them wait outside. The people just wouldn't let me through the gates. What could I do? Katy Perry. In the 1960s, Keith Hudson was what you'd call a bona fide hippie. He lay down candles in the rain in August of 1969. He played tambourine for Sly and the Family Stone. He had mutton chops, and he dabbled in LSD. Coming together with famed psychologist Timothy Leary to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Eventually, he began dealing the psychedelic drug, Until one day, when he found himself alone in an apple orchard, staring up at the sky. And he says he saw visions of Bible passages. So Hudson stumbled into a Christian revivalist meeting, where he met God. And a woman named Mary Perry. Mary Perry was also a wild child. A debutante gone rogue, she'd spent her 20s partying her way across Europe, where she got acquainted 
with Mary Jane and briefly dated Jimi Hendrix. She married a race car driver in Zimbabwe and later divorced until she too found herself sitting in a Christian revivalist meeting where a pair of mutton chops caught her eye. In 1979, Keith Hudson and Mary Perry got married. They became born-again Christians and devoted their lives to being traveling Pentecostal preachers. They once were lost, but now were found. The couple left Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix, and Timothy Leary behind and shifted their focus to three new people, their children, Angela, David, and Catherine. Capital D devout evangelists, Keith and Mary Hudson were committed to raising their children within the Christian faith. Katy Perry later said that growing up in their Santa Barbara home, if it had to do with God, it was A-OK. They went to worship Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday evenings traveling weekly to other churches to spread their teachings. The Hudsons developed strong bonds with their faith community, spending time with other church-going families who shared similar values. At the dinner table, speaking in tongues was as regular as pass the salt, and Mary read to her children from the Bible every night. But there were also limitations placed on the Hudson clan. They were not allowed to use the word lucky because luck was of Lucifer, but rather encouraged to say blessed instead. It ruled out lucky charms, though Katy Perry later said that may have just been the sugar content. Deviled eggs in their household were called angeled eggs. The children weren't allowed to celebrate Halloween or dress up in costumes. They weren't permitted to attend co-ed parties or school dances. LGBTQ plus people were synonymous with the word abomination. They watched only Christian television programming or Bill O'Reilly. All popular movies with the exception of Sister Act Two were strictly prohibited. And secular music was out of the question. So much so that when Marilyn Manson or Madonna rolled into town on tour, the Hudsons would bring their three children along to picket the concerts. Standing outside the venues, they'd hand out flyers to concertgoers titled, How to Find God. Katy Perry later told Vogue that at the time, she didn't know any different, but would soon come to realize she lived in a bubble beyond the bubble. The Hudsons noticed that their eldest daughter, Angela, had taken to singing in the church choir and that it was an interest worth nurturing. So they enrolled her in singing lessons. At that age, Catherine was her older sister's shadow. And suddenly after watching Angela practice vocal runs, she too wanted to sing. So the Hudsons enrolled both their daughters in singing lessons. Nine-year-old Catherine began belting out gospel songs nonstop. So her family started calling her Katie Bird. They considered her voice to be a gift from God. Catherine sang in her bedroom at school. She put on performances for her family. And eventually, her father put her front and center at church. 
from ages 10 to 12, the preacher's daughter sang her heart out to rows of packed pews. Like her parents, she was comfortable on stage. She said singing became a talent she could pull out and show off at any given moment. And at age 13, Catherine asked for a guitar for her birthday. Her parents were happy to oblige. Watching young Catherine sing Amazing Grace and Oh Happy Day was a point of pride for them. So they bought her a blue acoustic guitar. Catherine practiced playing that blue guitar every day, so hard she had to coat her fingertips with super glue to keep them from blistering. She started writing her own music, beginning with the song called Trust In Me, about her relationship with faith. Suddenly, she was able to put her innermost thoughts onto a bed of music. And though she wasn't allowed to believe in magic, that guitar made her feel like she had superpowers. Catherine played her original songs in church, making them a staple in her parents' traveling ministry. And at one such performance, Trust In Me caught the ear of a woman named Jennifer Knapp. Knapp was a Christian folk rock musician touring her latest album on the church circuit. She heard major potential in Catherine's voice and offered to become her manager. Hallelujah. Soon afterward, Knapp suggested Catherine relocate to Nashville to improve her writing and guitar technique. Catherine packed her bags immediately, but her parents weren't so keen. They wanted their daughter to stay close by and continue singing at church, and Catherine would have to take time away from school. But they decided to agree to disagree. And in 2001, Catherine dropped out of school, but got her high school equivalency diploma. And she and her reluctant mother headed across the country to the songwriting cathedral of the world, Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, Catherine honed her writing skills. She learned to formally play the guitar and, most importantly, she started to develop a first-hand understanding of the music industry. Under the guidance of Knapp, Catherine started recording demos and shopping them around to labels. And one demo in particular piqued the interest of an executive at Red Hill Records. Red Hill was a subsidiary of an independent Christian rock label called Pamplin Music. They were looking for young Christian artists to appeal to young Christian worshipers, and Catherine Hudson was the whole package. She was fresh-faced, devout, and talented, sporting choker necklaces, pigtails, and her signature blue guitar. So Red Hill Records signed Catherine, and that very year, she penned what she later called the best gospel album one could write at 16, eponymously titled Katie Hudson. She was beyond excited. In the blink of an eye, she was already a signed recording artist. But soon, Katherine Hudson would realize that having a record doesn't make you famous. Her album sold only 200 copies, and soon afterward, her teenage dream would shatter to pieces. Red Hill Records went bankrupt. There was nothing more they could do for her, 
and her debut album was buried. Catherine was heartbroken and returned home to Santa Barbara. At age 16, Catherine thought her singing career was over. She felt rejected and a failure. When one day, she went over to a friend's house. They turned on the television to VH1, a channel Catherine was never allowed to watch at home. And she stared at the screen, transfixed. A man named Glenn Ballard was on, talking about producing Alanis Morissette's hit album, Jagged Little Pill and Catherine couldn't believe her ears. You Oughta Know blew her concept of music wide open. Alanis was bold, honest, free, unbridled. She was fluent in a language Catherine didn't know existed. Immediately, Catherine felt pulled to create a new Katie Hudson record, this time in the style of Jagged Little Pill. Catherine realized there was an entire musical landscape out there that had been hidden from her. So as she later said, she became a sponge, soaking in everything she had missed over the years, anything pop culture related that she could possibly get her hands on. Soon she discovered Gwen Stefani, then Michael Jackson, then all roads led to the Holy Grail, Freddie Mercury. Catherine said when she first laid eyes on Freddie Mercury, time stood still. Beyond his unbelievable voice, he showed her what it was to be an entertainer. He wore daring outfits. He was theatrical. He was a firework. Catherine said it felt like her heart opened up and she suddenly wanted to experience all kinds of new things. She wanted to travel, meet interesting people outside the church community, and step out of her comfort zone. Catherine was re-energized. She would give her singing career another go. But this time, she would divert from gospel music and try her hand at pop rock, Alanis style. Catherine had cultivated a secret life outside of her family values, full of music and movies and television and art. Her bubble had burst but she wanted more. So at the ripe old age of 17, Catherine told her parents and her siblings she was moving to Hollywood. Santa Barbara was a mere hour and a half drive from Los Angeles, but the Hudson's anxiety wasn't in the mileage. The City of Angels was rife with devils, a world away from the lifestyle they'd carefully created for their children. Angela was terrified for her younger sister later saying in the documentary, Part of Me, that to her at the time, LA was a huge, scary, big city. But it was already decided. Katie Bird would fly the nest. This time, without the parachute of her mother by her side. She was completely on her own. When she got to Los Angeles, Catherine dove in headfirst. She started booking open mic nights, going to bars, meeting folks from different walks of life, including new LGBTQ friends. She danced, partied, had her first relationships, experimented with makeup, and dyed her hair black. 
Catherine wanted to distance herself from her failed album. 200 copies of Katie Hudson were circulating somewhere in the country, but they didn't reflect her newfound outlook. As she got more up-to-date on popular culture and more familiar with Hollywood, she realized there was already a famous actress named Kate Hudson. Catherine would have to change her name and adopt a new showbiz persona that was totally unique. Catherine would become Katie full-time. She'd drop Hudson and assume her mother's maiden name, Perry. And we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. to Santa Barbara, LA was a huge, scary, big city. So Katy Perry made a pact with herself. She'd give herself until she turned 25 to make it. If it didn't happen, she said she'd just settle down and find a nice husband. But Perry was still eight years away from that deadline. Plenty of time. She remembered back to watching VH1 that fateful day at her friend's house in Santa Barbara and had tucked the name Glenn Ballard into her back pocket. The genius behind Alanis Morissette's biggest album, Ballard also had worked with Michael Jackson, the Pointer Sisters, Aerosmith, Van Halen, and No Doubt. He founded a company called Java Records, where he was a music producer and writer. 
and sitting on his desk were five Grammys. So Katy Perry knew exactly where to go. One day, Ballard was at his offices, working in the studio with one of his artists, when he heard a knock at the door. It was 17-year-old Katy Perry. He said, are you an artist? She said, yes. He said, are you going to play me a song? She said, yes. She walked in and opened her guitar case, and within two minutes, Ballard was completely taken aback. He loved the unusual way she played the guitar. He noticed immediately that the songs she played him were both fun and catchy, but also had intelligent lyrics. But even before all of that, he detected that elusive star quality in Perry, the it factor. He said, stop the press. I want to help you. Oh, and what's your name again? thought Perry was pure talent. He told her he wanted to get her signed to a label and make her dreams come true. The pair spent the next year in the studio together, writing. He told her to come up with a brand new song every single day to strengthen her lyric muscle. To make rent, Perry sold her clothes online and took odd jobs. In the evenings, she performed at open mic nights and other gigs an experience she later said was invaluable because it was a free way to get used to being in front of a crowd and to gauge an audience read on new material. Then, Glenn Ballard delivered on his promise. First, he got Perry a manager. Then, he got her signed at record label Def Jam. Perry was roaring with excitement, and she and Ballard got to work putting together her first Katy Perry album. Her debut pop album would be full of songs about her transition from Katherine Hudson to Katy Perry, a real coming-of-age record. They spent hundreds of hours in the studio, and Perry played hundreds of gigs testing out the tunes. But it quickly became apparent that Def Jam wasn't all that interested in Perry or her album. This frustrated Ballard because he knew she had everything it took. He was beating his head against the wall trying to get the label heads to pay attention and recognize Perry's potential. But after a whole year passed, they hadn't made any progress. Def Jam decided to shelve the album and drop Katy Perry from their label. Perry was crushed. This was the second label that didn't work out and her second album that went nowhere. Glenn Ballard knew talent when it knocked on his door and wasn't going to give up on Perry. So he brought the songs they had recorded to executives over at Columbia Records. A publicist at Columbia named Angelica Cobb said she instantly fell in love with Perry and Perry signed her third record contract. She couldn't believe it. This time, it would stick. She could feel it. Perry was given a monthly allowance, so she promptly bought what everyone buys with their first paycheck, a Louis Vuitton keychain for her Volkswagen Jetta. Columbia had Perry attend parties to network with the music industry elite. It was nerve-wracking. 
She wanted to scream at everyone in the room that all she wanted was to live their lives. She performed a song she had written both on her own and with Ballard for the Columbia producers. But they weren't as enthusiastic as he was. They wanted her to be more grunge like Avril Lavigne, or more punk pop like Ashley Simpson, or maybe she should be the next Kelly Clarkson. Their vision for Perry didn't match the vision she had for herself. She said she didn't want to be the next Kelly Clarkson. She wanted to be the first Katy Perry. Perry knew who she was. She knew how she wanted to dress, what she wanted to say, and how she wanted to present herself to the world. She had opinions and a sense of humor. But Columbia wasn't having it. Any of it. Perry did have one piece of success. A song of hers called Simple was featured in the movie Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Being on the soundtrack of a successful movie was certainly something. But as far as her own record goes, the writing was on the wall. Ballard may have gotten her in the door, but it was on Perry to stay inside. And with every passing day, she felt herself inching back out. Columbia tried pairing her with up-and-coming producers, but the chemistry wasn't there. And after a while, the record label essentially stopped working with Perry. They couldn't figure out where she fit into the industry. Angelica Cobb, the Columbia publicist who had initially loved Perry, said she learned the label wanted to let Perry go, but worried that if someone else got a hold of her, she'd probably become a big star. And that would reflect poorly on Columbia. Basically, Katy Perry was stuck. Then a piece of news trickled down from the corner office. A number of female artists on the label were, quote, on the chopping block, and her name was on that list. Katy Perry was dropped, yet again. It was devastating. Shortly afterward, she got some unsolicited advice from someone in the industry. They said, go home. No one gets signed four times. You're damaged goods. Perry felt rejected and alone. She'd get so close to completing a record that she'd bring a copy of it along with the artwork to show her friends and tell them it was finally happening. Then a short while later, she'd get the inevitable call that it was all over. Little did she know, she still had someone at Columbia in her corner, Angelica Cobb. Cobb didn't like the way Columbia had treated Perry. She said in the documentary, Part of Me, that she felt they were holding Perry hostage, crushing her dreams to save the company's own ego. And Cobb decided she couldn't stand to work there anymore. So she quit. And on her way out, Cobb did something risky. She tucked Perry's files under her arm and marched them straight over to Capitol Records. Cobb was hired at Capitol Records to run their PR department. And her first order of business was to show them Katy Perry's files. So Perry met with the CEO of Capitol. He was instantly interested in Perry. 
He said later in the documentary that a telltale sign of star quality is when an artist doesn't dress, speak, or act like a regular person. And that was Katy Perry, unique across the board. It was a done deal, or so she thought. They entered into a months-long contract negotiation about artist music rights, until eventually, Capital backed out and decided not to sign Perry after all. Perry later told Cosmopolitan magazine that she had a lump in her throat, but she couldn't even cry. She had gotten her hopes up for the fourth time. She felt foolish. She had heard more no's than yeses for seven years. At this point, Perry was broke. She had no money for rent and was two months behind on her Jetta payments. She started working as a backup singer for hire and selling more of her clothes. She borrowed money from her preacher parents, and when that wasn't enough, she stooped to what her brother David calls the lowest moment of her life. She called him, her 16-year-old baby brother, and asked for money. He didn't have any. Perry was at her wit's end. Then her Jetta was impounded, and she was left with nothing but a designer keychain. But her manager still believed in her. So against his better judgment, he started writing her rent checks to keep her going. So Perry picked herself up off the floor and kept gigging, eventually becoming a staple at Hollywood underground venues. She'd show up with her low-rise jeans, jet black hair, and her acoustic guitar, and wow the audience. It was confusing. She got positive reactions from her live shows, yet nothing but negativity from record labels. She was approaching the deadline she had set for herself to give up, give in, settle down, and find a nice husband by age 25. Then, her flip phone rang. It was Capitol Records. One of the female acts they had signed wasn't working out, and the CEO changed his mind about Perry. It was divine intervention. Perry later said that Capital wanted to make a pretty woman story out of her, minus the prostitution. She may have been damaged goods, but she was granted another chance. She didn't end up with the best record deal in the world, But as Capital's CEO later said, she was dropped by three other labels. In late 2007, Capital was ready to present their new artist, Katy Perry, with a bang. So they shot a music video for one of her songs called You're So Gay and released it online. It showed Perry in a polka dot t-shirt playing a blue guitar. Perry said the song was about a straight boyfriend who she thought must have been gay in a past life. The tune was controversial, igniting chatter among many different groups, conservatives, LGBTQ+, and even industry types. No one knew exactly how to categorize it until the Queen of Pop made a proclamation that made up everyone's minds. Madonna declared in a radio show interview that You're So Gay was her favorite song of the moment, and Perry's video views went through the roof. At this point, 
Perry already had written and recorded the majority of the songs that would make up her first pop album, including a track called Thinking of You. Then one morning, she woke up with a chorus in her head. It was catchy. Perry brought it to her producer, and the two massaged it into a song Perry was extremely proud of. So she presented it to the higher-ups at Capitol, hoping to make it her first official single. And they hated it. They said they didn't hear it for her record. It would never get any airtime, and they wouldn't put it on the album. One executive adding, how is this going to be played in the Bible Belt? But Perry took a step back. She told herself to count to 10, not get frustrated, and let the song grow on them. And as it turned out, she was right. They came around. In April of 2008, Katy Perry's first single called I Kissed a Girl was released. The song exploded and soared to the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart, where it stayed for nine weeks. Her second single, Hot and Cold, peaked at number two. Then came her third and fourth, Thinking of You and Waking Up in Vegas, which both cracked the top 12. And two months later, her debut pop album titled One of the Boys was released, and the world was formally introduced to the bold, honest, free, unbridled hitmaker known as Katy Perry. After all the rejection, all the setbacks, the embarrassment, the hope, and the crushing disappointments, Perry triumphed just in time for her 25th birthday. Now, you may be wondering what her conservative parents thought of her newfound success and her newfound sound. Her mother said that I Kissed a Girl is not her favorite song, but to dispel any rumors the Hudsons aren't supportive of their daughter's career, they're finding ways for their two worlds to coexist. They made a cameo in her music video for Hot and Cold, dancing in the pews of the video's wedding scene, and they can often be found swaying in the VIP section at her concerts. Katy Perry's rise to the top was not like the movies. She was a dark horse. But after eight long years, her teenage dream finally came true. And she never looked back. Interesting to note, rejection has played a dual role in Katy Perry's life. First, she was raised in a very strict religious bubble, cut off from pop culture. But when she becomes aware of the world outside that bubble, there's no turning back. She slowly begins to reject her upbringing. She discovers VH1 and marvels at the music videos she sees. She is mesmerized by pop music. She breaks free and moves to Los Angeles to gig in bars and open mic nights. She parties, has relationships, embraces the LGBTQ community, and hones her music writing skills. It is almost a wholesale rejection, not of her faith, but of the strict limitations of her past. 
that rejection slingshots her into her future. Then the flip side of rejection rears its ugly head. She is signed, then rejected by three different labels. You can't skip by that part of her career too quickly. When you're a struggling artist looking for a record deal and you've been signed, then dropped by three labels, you are tainted merchandise. But those rejections had value. The Christian label isn't what Katy Perry ended up wanting to be. Def Jam didn't understand her. Columbia wanted her to be like their other acts. None of those opportunities were right for Katy Perry. They would have stunted her growth as an artist. In her most recent album titled Smile, there is a lyric in the title track that says, Rejection is God's prevention. So often, rejection is prevention. Obstacles feel like walls, but in reality, they are the universe's guardrails, preventing you from taking the wrong exit or making a fateful turn or stopping at a dead end. All those preventions happened for Katy Perry. All those rejections led her to the one record label that let her be herself. Then, remarkably, even when she couldn't afford groceries, was behind on her rent and her car had been repossessed, Katy Perry turned down a six-figure publishing deal from Capitol Records. She insisted on owning her own song rights. That decision would pay off handsomely down the road when Forbes named her the third highest-earning celebrity in the world. It's interesting to note her first song was given a huge boost when it was endorsed by a certain superstar. That superstar was Madonna. The very Madonna Katy Perry and her family once picketed when Madonna's concert rolled into town. One day, when you look back on your career, you'll spot the pattern. That it was always the hardest times that made you who you are. The key is Resilience, which is the title of another song on Katy Perry's latest album. Never, ever give up. Catherine Elizabeth Hudson, Guinness World Records, first Twitter user to reach 100 million followers, 2017. Most followed female on Twitter, 108 million. Female artist with the most number one singles on one album, 5. Most watched Super Bowl halftime performance of all time, 2015. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Abby Forsyth. Director, Callie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you that this episode is engineered by one Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, by all means, message us on our site. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly.
See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.